tackle tough jobs, you need tough workwear, like the new Cintas Comfort Flex Pro line of pants and shirts. They have the comfort and durability you demand, and they're made to move with lightweight, breathable fabric and a stretch waistband. They even come with Cintas laundry service, so every team member gets fresh, clean workwear delivered every single week, all for way less than you expect. Learn more at Cintas.com slash PHC News. That's Cintas, C-I-N-T-A-S, and get ready for the workday. Welcome to Stories from the Mechanical Room with Dan and Steve, a PHCP Pros podcast. I'm Steve Smith, the editor of PHC News Magazine. And I'm Dan Foley. I'm Steve's co-host and president of Foley Mechanical, Lorton, Virginia. Tune in every month for our podcast where we have esteemed guests talk about the latest issues affecting us in the PHC industry. Well, very good, Dan. Well, let's dive in and find out what Mechanical Room stories we're going to discuss this month. Let me grab a cup of coffee and let's do it, Steve. I got my coffee right here. Let's go. And our great guest is John Siegenthaler. John, I think everybody knows who you are, but uh, for the couple of people on the planet Earth that don't, please go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. Um, Well, I'm an engineer. I've worked with hydronic systems now for about 45 years trying all different types of products and applications. It's been a wonderful career. Um, mm. I'm not ready to hang it up at this point. I, I think the hydronics market is in a really good position right now. Good. We're going to get into that. And uh, and I've been fortunate enough to work with you, Steve. I, you were the first editor I worked with. Uh, yeah, yeah. Doing some writing, going way back into the 1990s. Long time ago. Yeah, we can talk about that too, because I, I I got a good story about that as well. And uh, I mean, you're a lot of things. You're a prolific writer, prolific presenter. But I mean, let's make sure everybody does know that you wrote the definitive textbook. I looked on Amazon this morning. It's in the fourth edition, if I if I got my facts right, right? It is. And yeah, the fourth edition. It was delayed a couple of years with COVID, but it came out in April last year. And mm-hmm. uh, we've actually expanded it each time, each edition. Right. We've added 100 plus pages. And one of the big changes this time is we have a whole chapter on hydronic cooling, mm-hmm. small scale hydronic cooling to mm-hmm. tie in with where our markets are going with heat pumps. Good. And again, just for the record, that's the modern hydronic heating textbook for residential and like commercial building, fourth edition. Correct. And I, I didn't even know about the heating and renewable energy book you wrote. Huh? Yeah, that was a um, quick story. I to a bicycling accident, was laid up for a little while. And I said, if I'm ever going to write this, now's the time to do it because I, I basically could still you know, work on a keyboard. And um, it was a, at a time when renewables were kind of getting another resurgence of interest. So what we did in that book is we took hydronics as kind of the base technology and we specifically applied it to solar thermal, to heat pumps, to uh, biomass boiler systems. Systems. Mm-hmm. And the idea was we have all these renewable heat sources out there. But if the people that are going to apply these don't understand hydronics properly, they aren't going to get it right. And, you know, I use that analogy of going to buy a Ferrari racing engine and installing it in a Cub Cadet lawn tractor and think you're going to the next NASCAR race and be competitive <laughs> with that. So that's that's kind of the premise of that textbook. Good, good. 
Well, listen, I, I, I know uh, Dan's got some general ideas. Uh, we want to talk about the evolution of hydronic heating from the se- late 70s to the, to, to the current day today. Um, so I'll let you, Dan take over and uh, I'll, I'll jump in with some questions too. So, John, I've been in the business since 87, and uh, I met you probably in the mid-90s at an RPA mm-hmm. function. And that was when Radiant was just taking off the re- re- resurgence of Radiant Floor Heat in North America. And back then, uh, the primary heat source were, were cast iron boilers. We had to deal with uh, return water temperature, boiler protection, uh, mixing valves. And it's come a long way since then to the modern modulating condensing boilers. Talk about how you see the evolution of hydronics, how it occurred from the eighties up to the present. Yeah. Yeah. Even going back late 1970s is actually when I, I got out and, uh, you know, cast iron boilers, steel boilers were the dominant heat sources. Uh, most of them had, many of them had tankless coils for domestic water, just a copper coil that inserted into the top of the boiler, copper piping and steel piping were pretty much the only options, uh, X-tubing hadn't arrived in North America yet. Uh, Fin-tube baseboard was was the common heat emitter for residential projects. You probably remember the B&G Series 100 circulators. They're still out there. Three-pace circulators and the uh, the famous Honeywell T86 round thermostat with a little glass tube with mercury in it. So that was kind of where technology was back then. Um, You know, late, well, early 1970s, the uh, oil embargo uh, back in 1973, really turned the energy markets on their head, and you know, price of fossil fuels spiked, and it drove the interest in solar at the time. So, solar thermal systems were out. And my first job right out of college was working with a small group that manufactured and applied uh, flat plate solar collectors. Uh, so that was late 1970s, early 1980s. Uh, I think one of the things that really turned the market around, the hydronics market was headed for, I, I won't say extinction, but it was it was going smaller and smaller all the time. Forest Air was gaining market share. Companies like Carrier Train, York, Forest Air, you know, could provide heating and cooling. And that was a big deal. Still is a big deal. So hydronics was dwindling. And... Again, a true story, working at Revere, one of the products Revere made was copper tubing. And one day I was going through some old file cabinets at my first job, and I found these old manuals from the 1940s on radiant panel heating, which I knew virtually nothing about. But I read them, and it talked about low temperature water and you know all the benefits of radiant heating. And I went to my boss at the time, and I said, Bill, we look at this. We should bring this back. We make copper tubing, we make solar collectors. Let's put them together and build solar radiant systems. And he looked at me and he said, you're young, you're ambitious. He said, but radiant floor heating is dead. It's gone, (laughs) forget about it. (laughs) And I always like to tell about that story because literally two years later, Wurzbo at the time brought the first cross-link polyethylene tubing to the uh, North American market. And Mm -hmm. At first, and Dan, certainly you could comment on this too, but I viewed it skeptically at first. I was a metal pipe guy. That's all I'd known for piping. And, you know, this stuff, I've heard people describe it early on as, you know, it looks like glorified garden hose. And what do you mean you're going to put that in a slab and put hot water in it? <laughs> but slowly but surely, Pex, I, I really think if you if you want to look at one product that 
saved the North American hydronics industry and really turned it around and got it going upward again, it was PEX tubing. More so than the boilers, the controls, all, all that. I think the, the availability of PEX tubing, because it brought back the benefits of radiant heating without the problems that were experienced with some of those early, you know, early jobs done with wrought iron pipe or with uh, with copper pipe. The job here in the DC area, we still have some old radiant systems with the welded wrought iron as well as the copper. Believe it or not, still in operation that were installed probably in the 40s and 50s. So they're sure. getting up to 70, 80 years old and still functional. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the, the concrete, what what my understanding was back then, some concrete. I think, especially down in the New York City area, was being uh, manufactured. They were using fly ash as one of the one of the materials in the concrete. And at, at the time, you had coal burning power plants, and you had a lot of sulfur in the coal. And the sulfur would go into the fly ash, and the fly ash would react with the copper. Sulfur and copper are not a good combination. And uh, that led to pinhole leaks. And, you know, obviously that led to discouraging results with, with floor heating at the time. People love the comfort, but hey, if it's going to leak, uh, we can't do it. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's always the common question. What happens if it leaks? And my answer is, well, you've got plumbing pipes all throughout the house as well. What happens if that leaks? Anything can leak, obviously. But yeah. Typically, I don't see the piping leak. I see it damaged by a drill bit or a nail is what I usually see. Yep. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen... I've seen one pinhole that I think was a manufacturing defect, and that's that's in forty plus years of working with it. You know, miles and miles and miles of pipe, and we've just never had it leak. It's it's been a very reliable product. Yeah, we've used packs pretty much exclusively for the past thirty years. Yeah, you probably remember polybutylene pipe. That was a little bit before my time. Um, was it? But yeah, the first I put in was the uh, the Weirsbow heat. Uh, P-Packs with the uh, the three stripes on it. Yep. That was probably in the late late 80s, maybe early 90s, the first yep. radiant job I did. Yep. Mine, 1988, and it was the worst bow. It was five-eighths uh, P-Packs. Mm-hmm. Same, yep. Same thing. Yep. yep. And then I also remember the first generation of condensing boilers. The uh, These are probably defunct companies now. Remember Glowcore and um, uh, Caruso Monitor Products, the MZ boiler. Those were the first condensing boilers. Yeah. The Munchkin. Munchkin, boiler. well, that, that was that, that was after that. I would say that would that would be second generation after True. that. Yeah. But uh yeah, so we really learned that that, that uh was called immersion learning, the fast way, because they were very unforgiving of poor installation. They were and, and it, it was a lesson learned that you know the the existing boilers, cast iron boilers, one of the really great qualities of a cast iron boiler, very low pressure drop. So you you could put three or four zone circulators and pump directly through the boiler and have you know virtually no detrimental effect on pressure. But along the glow core in particular had a very high pressure drop, and the industry at the time just didn't know how to deal with that. They didn't know how to separate the boiler, you know, with closely spaced T's or some other way to separate the boiler from the distribution system, and it ultimately probably led to failure of some of those companies. They just, they just couldn't come back from where they were with, I think that while well, Glowcore has been gone for a long time, but it was a difficult period of learning for the industry. And Dan, you mentioned uh, flue gas condensation, boilers being destroyed by flue gas condensation. That was another hard lesson learned in the industry. We were all excited about 
using mixing valves and bringing water temperature down for the floor, but we ignored the low temperature water going back into the boiler and causing water vapor that for for decades with high temperature systems was not a problem. It would just evaporate and it would leave with the flue gases. And uh, all of a sudden these boilers were being destroyed or the vent connectors were being corroded out in a matter of months. And again, we learned that we have to pay attention to the boiler inlet temperature as well as that supply water temperature when we're dealing with cast iron or steel or copper tube boilers. John, I consider you one of my mentors and I've learned so much from you over the years. Back in the mid-90s, I went to one of your seminars, and the, 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 the topic of discussion was documentation. And that hit home with me. We, we're on a job right now. Literally, we're doing the job right now. It's a job that I installed in 1993, one of the first radiant jobs I did in a new house. And when you're on the job site every day for three, four, five, six months, you know where every single pipe, wire, valve, you, you, you've got memorized. You don't need to write anything down. It's in your head. Go back 10 years later, 15, or in this case, almost 30 years, over 30 years later, and you have no idea. You see pipes disappear into the wall. They're not marked. You have no idea where they are, what they did. And I found rolled up on some graph paper, a hand sketch using symbols that I learned from you. And it helped me out 30 years later. Now, of course, I do it all electronically. I use a product called Visio that you turned me on to 20 years ago. I talked about documentation and how important that is. It's impossible to service these systems if you don't properly document them. Yeah, it's, it is a huge benefit and it, it's a value. And I, I think it needs to be sold as a value to, to clients. To your point, uh, we've done you know, hundreds of systems over the years and I can't go back to years. I, I can go back about three months <laughs> and remember what I did. But yeah, having pipe schematics, electrical schematics and a description of operation of how that system is supposed to operate. And having those coordinated. So if you call a circulator, you know, circulator one on the pipe schematic, you refer to it as circulator one on the electrical and in the description of operation. And it's a, you, you know, it's a roadmap. So different tech, or it could be the same tech, it just doesn't remember, has a roadmap to follow. And it can save you hours of time and troubleshooting, especially, Dan, I know you're doing highly customized systems. The more customized those systems are, the more important that documentation is. And there's all kinds of tools out there today. There's free CAD software. Uh, there's, you know, there's all kinds of easily accessible tools, a cell phone. Obviously, you can you can do a lot of documentation, taking photographs and labeling them and keeping some type of a file on every project. So uh, documentation is it is professional and it has a value. And, and, and I would tell any contractor, sell it. To a you know to somebody that where your competition pulls out a business card, one heating system thirty thousand dollars. Here you go, John. You have a, a, a canned uh, downloadable program that does all that for you. Mm -hmm. Talk about that and how how our listeners could access that information. Yeah, yeah. I worked with uh, a software company and a fellow I used to teach with at a community college, and we developed a product called HydroSketch. And you just go to HydroSketch.com on the web, and you can try it for free. It's, it's a cloud-based tool. It's designed to be a sketching tool. It's, it's not designed to compete with AutoCAD or some of the other high-end CAD products. It's basically symbol palettes. You drag symbols onto a canvas and you, you connect them together and then you send it out to your printer. So to make a, 
piping schematic, or there are some electrical symbols in there for, for electrical schematics. So that's out there. It, it costs about $33 a year to have unlimited access to it. So if you want to try it out, hydrosketch.com. I'll say I use it all the time. I use it a lot of times, even for our simple change house. I'll do a quick sketch, print it out, put it with the work order for my guys, and they know exactly how I want it piped and, and what components they need to properly do the job. Good. Very good. John, I wanted to go back to your PEX comment because you, you mentioned that you were a metal guy. And I was kind of curious about, well, PEX, obviously, you know, we take it for granted now, like it's something that we've always had. Um, but I always think when when these things happen, what's your thoughts about why why it happened then? I mean, it's obviously being used for many many years in Scandinavia and Europe. It obviously worked. They knew that. Obviously, you know, you got to gear up for production and manufacturing and logistics. You know, ship it all the way over to America. I get yeah. that part. But was there any magic about when it finally hit here in the United States? You know, that's a good question, Steve. Um, I don't know about the magic, but a guy named Thomas Lenman. Mm-hmm. Probably have heard that name, Mr. Pex, the original Mr. Pex. Yeah, yeah. He is the guy that uh, I would give credit to that had that brought the, at least to my knowledge, brought the first crosslink polyethylene tubing to the North American market. Mm-hmm. And it, I'm sure it was a challenge at first because, like myself, you know, we were used to metal pipe and likely had the uh, idea that plastic pipe was somehow inferior to metal pipe for. Mm-hmm you know, for water or for hydronic systems. I'm not sure what triggered it. Um, there was polybutylene pipe in the market. Right. Uh, Shell had manufactured the resin for that. Right. Uh, the pipe itself held up fairly well, but um, the fittings, uh, there were problems with fittings, especially when it was used in domestic water systems with chlorine. And ultimately, there were a lot of failures of those systems, not because of the pipe failing, but because of the fitting system. And uh, that's gone from the market. Uh, mm-hmm. th- there was, as you, I'm sure you both remember, um, rubber tubing in the market. There, there still is some rubber tubing out there. Uh, but at the time, it was a non-oxygen barrier tube. And it was definitely different from, you know, the, the companies like Wurzbo that had PEX on the market. And there were lessons learned with that as well. And and I think today, to your comment, Steve, PEX is pretty much a commodity. You can buy it anywhere. I mean, you can buy it in your Home Depot, right? Mm-hmm. So it's become a commodity, but it's really a, a well-engineered product. And, and I'm not a chemist, but you know, I've looked into kind of the, the chemistry behind it. And it's uh, it was used, before it was used in, in hydronics, it was actually used for jacketing on underwater cable systems. Really? transoceanic cable system uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so it's um it revolutionized the hydronics industry and, sure. and at first it was primarily just for radiant heating and it became more and more acceptable for general hydronic use mm-hmm. uh, you know not necessarily baseboards for example could be piped with pex tubing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then of course codes uh, eventually i know in new york state the codes eventually accepted pex as a uh, legitimate product for plumbing. And of course, that's become the, the big market uh, in terms of volume or dollars. But, but PEX is, um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing product and it's, uh, it's worked really well in the market. So, And you guys both touched on boilers. I mean, what, what was, I just want to make sure I understand, what were the key developments in boilers for use of 
radiant under floor heat. I mean, we got the packs, we got the conveyance for the water, but what about the boilers and controls? What what clicked, I guess, over the years to make them a better a better marriage, I guess, with the uh, packs and 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 underfloor heat rating heat. Dan, I'll jump in there. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, what I see is, is first off the modulating technology. The first condensing boilers didn't modulate, so they would short cycle like hell, and then the controls, the uh, igniters, uh, would fail over time, and they had high high pressure drop. You needed the equivalent of a 0011 or 2699 pump for a small radiant system. It just didn't make sense. So when they came with lower pressure drops through the heat exchanger, modulating, um, built-in outdoor reset to modulate the, or to reset the, the supply water temperature, and, and then smaller sizes. We don't need 200,000 BTU boilers for, for a small radiant project. So that's what I saw as far as the changes in evolution over the years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Uh, cast iron boilers, of course, they're still out there. And... I've spoken to people over the years that just look at a cast iron boiler like like a wagon wheel. You know, it's like, why do you even talk about these things anymore? And yet, cast iron boilers could last for decades. Um, I've got cast iron boilers in service for 40 plus years. So that is a quality that they have. They are a long life product when when they're properly applied. And a fellow actually from Meztech told me this, uh, and I didn't realize this, but about 90% of the cast iron that goes into a cast iron boiler is actually recycled cast iron. So fire hydrants, uh, railroad car wheels, that type of thing. So cast iron is a highly recyclable material. And, you know, I know there were some companies that actually there was one company, it was within the Mestec group there that came out with a condensing cast iron boiler. I think it's still on the market. Uh, Dan, you may remember it. What was it? That's the KN series. KN series. Thank you. And and the idea was that as it would operate, the cast iron would oxidize because condensate has a pH of around four. It's it's an acid. So it it basically goes after the the iron in in cast iron and it causes causes corrosion. But they did testing on this and and I thought it was a very interesting idea. They found that even with the deterioration of the cast iron, that that boiler would likely last longer than some competing stainless steel modulating condensing boilers. And it had thermal mass. It was self-buffering. It, you know, four or five hundred pounds of cast iron. You, you could modulate the boiler, and the thermal mass of the cast iron would act in a sense like, like a buffer tank for you. So, you know, we've seen different concepts kind of come and go in the industry. I, I know that. KN boiler is still out there. I think it's primarily uh, sold in the commercial market now. Uh, but but one thing that has changed with boilers, lifespan. Today, in reality, I, I think 15 to maybe 20 years is, is the life expectancy of a new boiler, of a ModCon boiler. So it, it's kind of gone the way many appliances have. You know, I, I remember an old refrigerator that my parents owned. It was made by General Motors. Frigid air, and uh, the thing wouldn't die; it would just go fifty years plus. Mm-hmm. And today, you know, you buy a refrigerator, and uh, hopefully, it uh, it'll last about uh, what ten years if you're lucky. <laughs> so, you know, the the idea that boilers definitely have become smaller and they have become more efficient. But one thing that has changed their their lifespan has gone down. 
And uh, I guess the industry has more or less accepted that. But, uh, you know, with interest in recycling materials and, and not creating waste, it'd be wonderful to see a boiler that would have that efficiency that could last 40 years. But given the pace of energy changes today, I don't want to be a boiler manufacturer today because I don't know if I'm building a product today, whether five years from now, that product can even legally be sold in, in some states. Gas boilers may not exist in the future, John. May not exist. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I hate that, you know, I, I kind of summarize, I think the politicians are way ahead of the engineering on this uh, with the regulations and the timeframes. And it, it's not that I'm against an eventual reduction of carbon. I, I would support that. But I think the timeframes are just unrealistic in terms of product development and, and just how this market works. It, it takes a long time to make a significant change in this market. Um, you know, Dan, primary, secondary piping. That goes back into what? Maybe the late 90s, something like that. And if you really research it, that went way back into the 1950s, 1960s with Bell and Gossett. And it was primarily used in commercial projects. But it took this industry probably 10 years to accept what primary, secondary can do and learn how to do it correctly. And by that time, hydraulic separators had come along and they, you know, they provided another method that was actually simpler than primary secondary piping. But change takes a lot of time in this industry. And uh, given the pace these energy markets are changing right now, uh, it's it's a tough situation for manufacturers. But you know, back to our point, I think contractors, if you're if you're Planning to stay in the hydronics market, I think it's it's a wonderful time to be in this market, but you definitely have to learn how to apply heat pumps because that is going to become the new norm with uh, with most hydronics. Well, that's a great transition point, John, because my background was HVAC. So I worked on gas furnaces and heat pumps before I even knew what a boiler was. And so now we've come full circle. Now we've got uh, air to water heat pumps proliferating the market, as well as other heat pump geothermal systems that we're getting into that require hydronics to, to be properly designed and installed. Let's talk about the future of hydronics when it, with the application of heat pump technology. Yeah. Well, the, I think the big game changer, you know, for, for years, for decades, hydronics was known for heating. And it, when it was done right, you got superior comfort. People bought hydronic systems because they love the comfort when they're heating their homes and, and their other buildings. But the question always came up, what do I do about cooling? And, you know, those answers would range from, well, I've got a buddy that does cooling to, you know, whatever, go hire a separate company. And it, it was always an, a weak point in our, in our offering to our clients, our prospective clients. And with heat pumps now, you know, they all come with reversing valves. So when you buy a heat pump for space heating, you're buying a chiller. Whether you choose to use the chiller or not, it, the functionality is there in the box. So learning how to do what I call small-scale chilled water cooling, and, and by small-scale, residential, light commercial. Obviously, chilled water cooling has been around a long time in, in the larger commercial markets, but it's available now, and the, the hardware is on the market we aren't waiting for really anything to apply small-scale chill water cooling as far as hardware is concerned. 
And, you know, we're trying to do more writing and teaching in that area just to make sure that contractors understand things like you've got to insulate the pipes and you've got to vapor seal that insulation. You can't cheat on that insulation. So I think the fact that heat pumps are now out there and from several companies, both geo water to water, air to water, and the fact that they can do cooling, I think that could be another major boost for the hydronics market. So that's that's why I go back to, I think this is a really good time in the market. If you sense where things are going and you tool up in terms of your design skills, your installation skills, you know, you can ride that wave. Yeah. I was uh, curious to know more about that because obviously uh, you just can't get away from it. reading about heat pumps, their use, their adoption. And, but if you talk to some old school contractors, they'll say, well, that's the end of the boiler industry. That's the end of the oil heat industry. You know, whatever. I mean, uh, what, what do you what do you say to those guys? What 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 are they what are they not thinking about properly? I guess. Yeah, I, I don't think it's the end of the boiler industry because it, actually, Steve, applying a heat pump again, air to water or water to water, low temperature hydronic distribution system, and using that heat pump for the majority of the space heating energy, but having a boiler as a backup, mm-hmm. and it, and it could be. Many of these, think of how many houses are out there that have boilers that potentially could be retrofit with heat pumps Mm -hmm. tying into that hydronic system. So the boiler is already there. And assuming that there's some life expectancy left in the boiler, why throw it out? Use it as your supplemental, your backup heat. And, you know, I think another good point with keeping that boiler in the system, one, one of the terms that's very popular today is this concept resiliency. You see this in a lot of writing, a lot of contemporary writing. And the idea is that if we have a you know a big ice storm like that storm that hit Texas a couple of years ago and it wiped out all these uh mm-hmm. you know utility structures and so forth, how can you keep your house from freezing for two or three days before the power's restored or or we? Mm-hmm. I can run an oil burner on 400 watts. Mm-hmm. I could run an oil burner on a little generator I could set here in my desk. And I, I can't really do that with a heat pump, especially if there's electric resistance backup. I, I could get a much bigger stationary generator, a Generac or a Kohler or something like that. But the fact that uh, I can run that fossil fuel boiler on minimal amounts of power, in my view, is adding resiliency to the system in its backup. Um, you know, heat pumps like anything else, there's a lot of electronics in heat pumps today and a, a voltage spike or other things, inevitably a heat pump that's going to last 15 or 20 years is going to require some service over that life. And if that happens to occur on a you know zero degree day, the boiler's there to back it up. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's there's a good synergy between keeping, especially in a retrofit, if that boiler's still there, keep it there and learn how to adapt the heat pump to that existing system. Very good. John, let's talk about the old RPA days. That's where I got to know you. And uh, I, I know there's still uh, RPA still out there now through Radiant Professionals Alliance. I've not really been actively involved. I'm still a member. I've been actively involved for years. Um, but back in the big nine, in the mid 90s, things were really taking off with Radiant Floor Heat. The Radiant Panel Association was, was growing exponentially. You were a big part of that. Talk about those days. Yeah, those were, um, those were fun days. And we had... Uh... I'll give Larry Drake a lot of credit. Larry was the guy that really created the Radiant Panel Association from from nothing. 
and built it into a, a you know a very interesting organization. Back then, and now we're talking like in the 90s, pre-internet, essentially. So if you wanted the latest information on design or products, you, you couldn't just jump on your computer and uh, I mean, you could look through magazines and look at ads and pick up your phone and you know call and try to get literature. But it was very different uh, from what it is today. And that allowed organizations like that to flourish. And I used to tell people, if you're going to one trade show a year and you, you're interested in hydronics, the RPA show was the one to go to. Mm-hmm. As you know, the other shows are certainly there, like the HR show. But now you're, you're dealing with 2,000 companies and you, you know, you're going to spend three days in shoulder shoulder crowds to uh, to go see what you're trying to see. So the RPA uh, really pushed the industry along. Uh, you know, they developed educational programs. Uh, we developed the, the Radiant Basics program and uh, uh, the uh, Radiant, I think it was Radiant Precision was the, the follow up course to it. So there was training going on and uh, it it really was fun. And, and I, like you, Dan, I, I met a lot of people that I'm still in contact with that are, you know, lifers when it comes to doing hydronics and, and uh, radiant systems. So I would love to see another conference like that come back to the U.S. So Canadians actually have several conferences. They uh, One of the, the trade magazines in Canada runs something called the Hydronics Summit. And they... I would liken that to the RPA. They they will get 250, 300 uh, people that are primarily focused in hydronics, and they'll get 50 or 60 vendors that will come to that. And it's um, that hydronic summit is a one day event. But I'd love to see something like what the the original RPA conferences and trade shows were come back into the U.S. at this point. We tried to do that with ACCA and it just didn't take off. It didn't catch. Yeah. And uh, it was more than RPA was more than just an association. It was almost like a brother. Like you said, you and, and other people are, are friends, fast friends of mine to this day that I've met through the RPA. Yeah. 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 It, it definitely was a, you know, human interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't replace it with a Zoom call. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, we're doing pretty good here today. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, 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 one of my favorite events as an editor to cover was was all the the RPA shows. I mean, I, I remember your love, top love, ten. Was- love going to the top ten. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, you mentioned that uh, I was the first editor to edit your columns. Uh, we got to give a shout out to Jim Olsinski, who I believe discovered you. <laughs> I don't know what year it would have been. Maybe I think it was the first RPA conference. It was, it was in Thunderbird Convention Hall or. Uh, yeah, casino, Thunderbird Casino and Convention. I guess I, I did not go to that. I did not go to that. But Jim, Jim met you there, and that's how you got, got yeah. to write in that column for us. I, I, uh, I had just finished the the first edition of the Hydronics textbook, and um, I remember Dan Holohan was there, and Dan was writing for Plumbing and Mechanical at the time, and uh, you know, just meeting uh, Jim Olstinski in the hall, and just kind of off the cuff, he said. You want to write for us? Yeah. I'll, I'll give it a try. <laughs> sure. Sure. And uh, I used to send you uh, three and a half inch floppy disks. Right. With the, uh, with the material on it. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. I, I, I forgotten that, but man, yeah, that, those are the days. Yeah. No, I, I, I missed that show quite a lot. And uh, it was just always a fun, fun thing to do. And it was. It's those early days. Like you said, the brotherhood. I always, 
reckoned it to a you know a band of pirates getting together. They had a you know they they knew something that no one else knew, and uh, they were going to ride that wave. And it was it, it, they did. Well, you know, it, it's interesting too at events like that, especially a smaller relative to like the HR show, a smaller event. You learn a lot in the hallway between mm-hmm. sessions. You know, yeah. Obviously, you go to the training sessions, but just interacting with people uh, casually. Um, you know what's working, what isn't working, and and I think back then too, and, and it's I'm sure still true today. A lot of people that are in this trade will willingly share their mistakes and what they've learned, so others can can you know profit from that. And I saw that with many many people in RPA. It wasn't like I have a secret. And unless you pay me, I'm not going to tell you the secret. People were willing to share that information. And I think that really, you know, that helped a lot of people uh, not repeat the same type of mistakes. Uh, so that was a big benefit of that. Yeah, it was great, great, great to get together the back, back, back at that show. Yeah. And Larry used to do monthly newsletters. Uh, they used to put together the, what was the Radiant Heating Report? I think it was called. And, and again, this was pre-internet, so that was very timely, you know, cutting-edge information at the time. And of course, today it's pretty pretty easy to to find stuff more than you need actually online. Mm-hmm. You can That's find true. any opinion you're looking for, right? Right, right. Well, I wanted to bring you up uh, to more today, today, because uh, I know a couple of weeks ago I, I saw you at the AHR Expo, and you got a nice award at the Cleffy booth when they announced the. Newest winner of the Carlson Hollihan Award, and uh, that was for your work with Kalefi on the Idronics Journal. And I, I guess you know you had you had been with that since day one. I did not know that story. Yeah, Maybe you tell us about how you got involved with that. Well, Kalefi North America. I'm not sure what the official founding date is. I'm going to say early 2000s, maybe 2002, 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few people brought Kalefi to North America, of course, very small organization at the time. And um, Sergio Casarino, uh, I think you probably both have yep. met Sergio. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Sergio was the original liaison between Italy and Calefi North America. And one day uh, I was with that group for what I forget, maybe it was at an RPA event. And Sergio asked me, would I be interested in writing a publication for Calefi? And I thought he was talking about some type of advertising flyer. Our marketing. And I said, you know, I'm probably not your best choice for that. And he pulled out a journal from Italy and it was called La Dralica, mm-hmm. which uh, they had been doing probably for at least 10 years. And I started looking through it and I was just blown away. It was, it was beautiful. It was um, very, I don't want to say this, it was generic in, in much of it. Of course, you know, if you had a a schematic and you had an air vent, you're not going to show a competitor's air vent, you're going to show a Calefia vent. But the material itself was very uh, brand agnostic, you know, how to build systems, quite honestly, regardless of what you might choose for an air vent or a circulator or a radiator, how to put systems together correctly. And I really liked that it was educational. It was, it was not a product push. So they they came up with uh, actually Rex Gillespie, who was the uh, marketing vice uh, marketing manager for Calefi at the time. He came up with the title Idronics, and, and this is mm-hmm. back when the iPod, I think it was, and the iMac were just coming out. 
So, you know, putting an I in Andronics, I thought, wow, you you nailed it. That That's a great uh, trademark. Mm-hmm. And our first one was 11 pages long, and it was on hydraulic separation, which was very new at that time. Primary, secondary piping, which is technically, it's a form of hydraulic separation, but it was really the only form that was being practiced in the North American market. And when I first looked at this hydraulic separator, you know, is that a little tank? Or is it buffer tank? What what is this thing? And uh, you know, in learning, it's actually a very very simple concept to to separate circulators on one side from the other side so they don't interact and interfere with each other. But um, one of the uh, <laughs> one of the people at Cleffy at the time, we we launched it. I think it was at the two thousand and seven AHR show. It was in Chicago. And it was, I say, 11 pages long. And he said, how'd you manage to write 11 pages about that damn thing? <laughs> I I, I kind of laughed because, uh, you know, many of the journals now, they're 60, 70 pages long. And we've done a lot of different topics over the years. Uh, I've enjoyed working with them. Uh, it's a wonderful company, wonderful people to work with. And uh, the food in Italy is great it is it is we've been fortunate enough to go over there a few times and um i've actually just handed the reins on hydronics over to uh, max roar and max will be writing that going forward and um i think max Max. will really max will do a really good job he's a good writer uh, uh, ambitious he gets things done Mm -hmm. and uh we finished, I, I finished with uh, number 32, which we just uh, launched at the show here uh, last month uh, on troubleshooting. And we did a, actually, we did a webinar on it last week, and we had over 800 people registered on that. So it's a, it was a popular topic, and uh, we're going to do a follow-up on it in, uh, in March. So, uh, yeah, Hydronics is, uh, has proven to be a, a good marketing tool for Kalefi, and it's been yeah. a good opportunity for me so to say the least john i I was kind of curious too um i mean i've known you for a long long time and you've always been you you know you know you seem to be a you know this writer presenter designer uh you know one of the lead you from the get-go you're a leading voice of the radiant hydronics industry and then we we talked before we hit record that you're obviously an engineer you went to engineering school you worked for a few years but you're an engineer i mean you could have gone anywhere but you you chose this uh, little slice of the world. Well, what was it about uh, that that got you involved? Well, that, that's a good question, too. Um, my father was a, a carpenter, and uh, he built houses. He wasn't a big builder, you know, pretty much him and a couple other guys building houses. And uh, getting out of college, I was I was actually engaged, and we were planning to get married two weeks after I finished up college. And I always wanted to my, – my father built the house that I grew up in. so. Naturally, I think, you know, get married. I've got to build a house for my wife and my my eventual family. And solar was uh, very much uh, a hot topic at the time. Mm-hmm. And I kind of came into hydronics through the solar portal, if you will. Uh, you know, I didn't know coming out of co- my background is actually aeronautical engineering. So I, you know, I could calculate shockwave angles on hypersonic nose cones. But if you asked me what a ball valve was and how it was different from a gate valve, I, I really didn't know. So learning about hydronics in the, you know, in the solar field, you obviously you're using pipe, you're using valves, pumps, controls. So you, 
you know, you, hydronics is really the glue that holds a lot of those renewable systems together. Uh, so I've always had an interest in residential building and, you know, with the energy background from college, putting residential building, we actually designed about, gosh, I'd say close to two dozen houses over the years too. I kind of get out of doing house design. I ended up, as you can appreciate, being a referee between a husband and a wife, trying to make decisions on, you know, aesthetic things in a house. And that's not my thing. My thing is structure. I, I could understand structure and, and design structure and design the energy systems for these houses. Uh, and so I moved away from doing low energy use housing design to, to doing the mechanical system design. And there, the husband and wife, neither one of them know much about it. So you, you pretty much got a clean sheet of paper to work with. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, we've been talking for a good long time, Dan. Anything else to? And we knew that we knew. Yeah, this isn't the Oscars. We weren't going to play music to get you off the stage, John. We we knew we were going to talk to you for a good long time. But Dan, uh, anything else before we? Oh, uh, I could go on for goodbye? hours. I, could I know go on for hours talking. Oh, to absolutely. John. It's, it's what I could be talk a, about could be a part long. two coming up. We could do maybe do a part two. <laughs> I just want to say, John, I appreciate your time for coming aboard and uh, sharing your time with us and your, your yeah. thoughts and your knowledge. Yeah, it's uh, I uh, I very much enjoy doing it, and uh, again, I I think my my parting thought is for those guys that are out there doing hydronics now and and wanting to stay in that, it's a really good time to be in a market. Learn learn heat pumps, learn how to apply low temperature systems, do a good job, take pride in your work, stand back and admire it when you're done. Wipe those solder joints if you're still soldering. Right, there aren't too many people what's still. Soldering. What's a torch? <laughs> What's a torch? Wipe those joints down and and uh, take pride in what you're doing. Uh, I think that really is a key. Uh, craftsmanship is not a thing of the past. It's craftsmanship and knowledge going forward. Uh, it's a great time to be in this industry and can earn a good living and and provide people with a service and a product that will give them enjoyment for a long time. So it's it's a good industry. Great. Well, that's got to be the last word. I can't, I can't come up with anything more poetic than what John just said. So very good. Well, thanks, John. And, sure. and, uh, Both very welcome. Dan and I will be back with, with more to come, but uh, this was a great one. Thanks. Thanks again, John. That's great. See All you right, guys. Bye-bye. See you. To tackle tough jobs, you need tough workwear, like the new Cintas Comfort Flex Pro line of pants and shirts. They have the comfort and durability you demand, and they're made to move with lightweight, breathable fabric and a stretch waistband. They even come with Cintas laundry service, so every team member gets fresh, clean workwear delivered every single week, all for way less than you expect. Learn more at Cintas.com slash PHCnews. That's Cintas, C-I-N-T-A-S, and get ready for the workday.